0: All right, today's passage, um, <laughs> today's passage is a little challenging, it seems like it's a little weird in our context, right? Paul has been developing this really, really logical flow of thought through the first five chapters, and all of a sudden, he's throwing Adam out there, right? And we're going to be talking about how Adam compares to Jesus, and it's like, dude, you haven't even mentioned Adam in the letter. Where did this come from? And, and not only that, it's, it's almost as if he's like, jumbling, like he's got these big, big themes and ideas, and, and, and it leads him to this moment where like, he begins thoughts. He doesn't even finish in these two paragraphs. Like he opens it up, and then he's like, wait, I got distracted. I'm going to talk about this, and I'm going to talk about this, and oh, all right, I'll come back around and talk about this, and uh, what do we do with this? Um, why do we have an extended comparison of Jesus and Adam when, when Adam hasn't even been mentioned? What I want to do this morning, I'm not going to dig into all the nuance of this passage, um, there's a lot here, and I'm going to encourage you to sit with it and study it, to to study the text, to cross-reference it, and even do some commentary work if, if you would like to. There's a lot here to dig into. We're not going to get that deep in the weeds with it this morning. What I want to do is give you an overview of, of what's happening in these several paragraphs and, and how it fits in to Paul's broader logic in the letter. So first of all, Adam, you know, like where does that come from, right? So in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sinned. So it begins by this, this, this mentioning of, of Adam. Why, why suddenly that mentioning of Adam? Well, it honestly isn't that jarring or surprising. Adam hasn't been mentioned by name, but he has absolutely been in the background of the first three chapters of the letter um, and been. Uh, in in a fundamental piece of Paul's reasoning up to this point. So, in verse 12, first word, therefore, uh, that signals to us that Paul is reaching back into the letter to draw some themes together to draw some conclusions, or at least to help us see some critical transitions at this point in his argument, right? Before moving on to the next phase of the argument, he wants to make some things clear clear, right? So in verse 12, he says, he says, therefore, right? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through unmen and death through sin. And so death spreads to all men because all sinned, right? Therefore, um, the big theological assertions of chapters one through three are rooted in this idea, or I would say this idea is rooted in those assertions, right? Um, he is looking back to this idea that, that um, we all share a common heritage. We all share a common problem As much as we want to other people, as much as we desperately want the world to be good guys and bad guys and God, and we're part of the good guys and they're part of the bad guys, Paul has been systematically working to undermine this fundamental human practice we all do it we all other we all create circles of acceptance and rejection of in and out of blessing and of cursing and paul's been making a very very clear argument that there aren't good guys bad guys and god There are just there's just god and people in need of grace that's it and, and, and you might have different camps of people in need of grace pointing out how they're in need of grace in ways I'm not. And even pridefully saying they're worse than me because they need grace in these ways and, well, I don't think I do, right? And, and Paul's like, look, y'all, you're all in need of grace. You're in one big circle, right? Yeah, your sin might look different than theirs. Your stink may smell different than theirs, but y'all stink. You're all covered in the same shame. All the way back in chapter 1, when Paul introduces his argument, Paul in chapter 1 has this masterful use of the pronoun they. Right, All the way through chapter 1, he, he's like, they do this, they do that, they're bad, they do this, right? And, and it gets us as readers going, you're right, they're bad. They are bad, right? In, in Romans 1, and 23, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we're like, yeah, that's really stupid. That you would exchange the glory of an immortal God to worship caterpillars? To, to bow down before things carved to look like things that are created? To, to, to worship what God made instead of the God who made them? Yeah, that, that's really dumb, right? Now, what's interesting is, is, first of all, Romans 1, 22 and 23 that we're looking at is a reference to Adam, all the way at the beginning of the letter. When he said they became fools, exchanging the glory of God, uh, the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling, he's talking about the first sin of Adam and Eve. He's talking about our first parents. He's, he's talking about when, when, when man created in the image of God said we don't want to be in the image of God. We want to be like God. We want to be equal to God. We want to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives that fullness. So we're not going to humbly depend on the God who gives life. We're not going to look to the things God created to give us life. Right? We're no longer going to to find our significance and our security, our joy, our, our sense of worthiness and love. We're not going to find those things by humbly relating to God. We're going to find those things by competing with one another. Right? That sounds like a great idea. And I'm going to find my eternal significance and how many gold coins I can accumulate in this little box. And I'm going to determine how much, how worthy I am compared to how ugly you are compared to my beauty or your weaknesses compared to my strength or, or how little your achievements are compared to mine. See, Paul is, in calling this out, not only putting focus on the sin of our first parents, he's putting focus on the fact that we've all sinned in the same way. Right, if you read Romans 1, where it says they did this and they did that and they were degraded and they had disordered uh, desires, and you walk away from Romans 1 thinking, somehow what Paul is saying is that somebody out there has sinned worse than you, you are totally misreading Romans 1. We're not reading the same chapter. Romans 1, the whole point of using they is to sucker punch us in Romans 2 where he says, you who judge are the exact same. The whole point of using they is to get us into that heart position where we are othering. And then to suddenly pull back the curtain and show us that we are what we judge. That we are the very thing we despise. That we're not better. There are not multiple circles. There's only one. So we see right at the beginning of the letter that there is a, a reference to Adam, right, at the opening of his argument in, in Romans 1, right? And, and we see that clearly because he, he uses the fourfold um, categories of creation, right? This idea that they exchange the, immortal, the, uh, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That, that echoes to us the fourfold creation categories uh, of Genesis 1, right, at the very beginning. So he's talking about Adam, and he's talking about everybody who came after Adam, and he's using that to, to set us up um, because Paul knows that, that while we are addicted to othering, we're also addicted to not seeing how we other, right? We are addicted to judging others, but we are addicted also to excusing our judgment and not paying attention to it, and in fact, ignoring it and not seeing it. So Paul sets us up not only to show us a truth, but to expose that truth in a visceral way, in our own hearts, that is easy for us to other others. Right? So he gets us all nodding and then exposes our nodding for the hypocrisy that it is. The theme is picked up again in Romans 3.23. Right? So three chapters later, in 323, Paul drives this point a little further home where he, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God right? If you've ever worked with crew, you have learned the, uh, the four spiritual laws, right? And I think this is one of those critical verses you learn to share with others so that you can explain the work of Christ. Um, and that's a great thing, but, but there's so much nuance to this verse. For all have sinned. That is the present perfect tense of the verb. Uh, And what that means is, is that it's talking about an action that took place in the past, but has ongoing ramifications today, right? All have sinned. It's something that took place in the past, but it has ongoing ramifications for us today. So he's not saying all of you are sinning. That's true, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying all of you sinned. Like at some point in the past, you made a choice to rebel against God. That, true, that is true, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying all have sinned. In other words, we all share a common point in the past where we are experiencing the ongoing effects or the ripple effects, right? We, we were all part of that, that stone that was thrown into the still pond and the ripples that came out of it. He's talking about Adam and Eve. He's talking about the sin of our first parents, that, that we, we have all inherited a broken nature from our first parents. So we are sinners by birth, and we are sinners by choice, right? We have received uh, this this inheritance of brokenness, right? And, And any parent knows this is true, right? You love your little angels as you should, but do you have to teach your little angels to be selfish? Do you have to teach your little angels to lie? Do you have to teach your little angels to use their physical strength to dominate others and abuse them? No, you spend almost all of your adulting energy trying to teach them to restrain the worst impulses of their nature so that they don't kill their siblings when they steal their Legos. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to teach kids to do bad things. You have to work very, very hard to teach them not to. Right? Why? Because we've all been born with that broken inheritance from our first parents, that innate selfishness that says, I want to be like God. I want to be the center of the universe. I should be able to dictate the, the boundaries of my own glory, right? That's every toddler. I should be able to, to establish in the world my significance, my domain, my comfort. And anything that gets in the way of that is my enemy, right? We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? The consequence of that, of that being a sinner by birth and a sinner by choice is that the present tense, we fall short of the glory of God, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we fall short of having a halo of bright, glowing um, light, right? When we talk about the glory of God, we're not talking about a brightness, we're not talking about a glowing, we're, not ta- we're talking about honor. That's what the word glory means, right? We fall short of the honor that is ours as those created in the image of God. We fall short, in other words, of the human job description, imaging God. We continually fall short of being what we were created to be. We continually fall short uh, uh, when we use our power to serve ourselves instead of others. When we exercise the power of our words or the power of our silence to give or not give justice or protection to others, right? The power of dominion was entrusted to humanity, and, and that power of dominion was meant to be exercised so that we could image God, so that we could contribute our power to the shared effort of the fullness and flourishing of life. We were created to be culture makers, to, to, to receive what God had given us, to take those fundamental ingredients and to build out like God built, a community of, of shared dignity, of plenty, of security of worth and value, where no one created in the image of God gets any less dignity than those created in the image of God because it's not about competition. It's about community. It's about the shared experience of delighting in the God who created us and delights in us. When we exercise our power to keep what we have and get more, when we exercise our power to expand the dominion of our little kingdoms at the expense of others, when we use our power to ignore the suffering of others, when we have the power to intercede on their behalf, we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the honor of being created in the amago Dei, the image of God, and actually exercising the job description of humanity. All have sinned. Past event, present conditions, and as a result, all fall short. Progressively, on an ongoing basis, present tense, none of us fulfill the human job description. How's that a reference to Adam? Once again, it's a nod to the fact that we were born sinners who then chose to be sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God because our first parent rejected the glory of God, and sought to establish his own in its place. So when we get to verse 12, what I want you to recognize is that Paul is picking up on a theme that he has already been thoroughly developing over the course of the previous five chapters, right? So when we get to verse 12, and he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, he's not saying anything he hasn't already said. He is, in fact, bringing to light and saying, look, I, I want you to see that this is one of the themes that I've been developing. This is one of the critical arguments in chapters 1 through 3, that our first father's sin against God resulted in death. Now, when you think about death, I want you to understand that, that he means much more than the physical death of the body. The essence of death is separation, right? Death isn't the cessation of being. Death is fundamentally separation. We physically die when our spiritual being is separated from our physical body. We spiritually die when our, when our whole being is separated from God, the source of life, right? So on the day they rebelled against God, Adam and Eve died, they, they were separated from the source of life, from God who gave life. And, and, and all the desires they had for the fullness of life, those, those desires became disordered. They started looking to the things God created to do for them what only God could do. Right? They were spiritually separated from God, which led to emotional separation, spiritual separation, both from themselves and from others. Right? They had the birth of shame and all the internal uh, things that come with, with, with our internal critique of ourselves, but also the separation that comes with competition. We now could no longer um, share genuine community with one another. We had to compete with one another because the world became a place of limited resources, and everything you had was something I couldn't have. Right? And I can't get what I have and keep what I have and get more if, if you also are getting what you have and keeping more at my expense. And so as a result, death was introduced into the created order in all of its aspects. You, you follow what I'm saying? Not just physical death, but the the death of shalom, the death of peace, the, the death of our life-giving connection with our Creator God. And as a result of that that separation, separation from every other critical relationship in life, right? Whether it's our relationship with ourselves or with others or or even with the rest of the created order. Now, what's interesting in verse 12 is that Paul begins this argument and then he doesn't finish it, right? Because when you get to the end of verse 12, you expect the comparison to be finished, right? Just as sin came through the world, we expect there to be a concluding thought. So life came through... But he gets distracted, which I kind of love about Paul, right? I mean, he is such a careful thinker, and he obviously has thought this all out. But in this moment, he's like, all right, y'all, I can't resist going down this rabbit hole a little bit, right? So you get to verses 13 and 14, right? So instead of finishing the thought, he just breaks it off. And for sin, all right, let's talk about sin for a minute, right? Indeed, it was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. All right, there's a lot here. I'm gonna encourage you to go study it, okay? I just want to give you an overview of, of kind of what he's digging into, right? He's already made the point that the law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, wasn't given to fix the problem of sin, right? Historically, yeah, Adam sinned, against God, introduced um, death into the world, and then at some point, God connects with Moses, and he's like, all right, Moses, I'm going to create a new covenant with you that's called the law, right, which we now refer to as the old covenant, and, and that law was 500 and some odd commands that governed all of Jewish life. We know it mostly by the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are the clearest and easiest sum, summation of, of the law, but that's not the totality, Right? And so he gives this law, and Paul has already made the point that, that, man, that law, what you need to realize, that law was given for some really important reasons. One of them was not to fix the problem, right? That law wasn't given so that you could fix yourselves. Even though you are obsessed with fixing yourself, even though you are obsessed with healing yourself, I'm going to give you a perfect tool and show you that even with that perfect tool, you can't do it, Right? So in Romans 3.20, Paul drives this home. In Romans 3.20, he says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So why was the law given? Not so you could fix yourself, because no amount of religious behavior is ever going to fix the problem we inherited from our first father. Even with a perfect tool. You are not a perfect surgeon of your own heart. You will misuse the tool and turn it into a weapon against others and a way to justify your own sin, right? The law was given not to fix your sin, but to show you your sin, right? It was given to to not fix the problem, but make it clear just how extensive the problem actually is, right? So so Paul's point here, the reason he's kind of... Bringing, digging into this is, is he's like, look, y'all, the law didn't fix the problem. But it didn't create it either. Right? The law didn't create sin. Sin already existed. The law didn't create death, even though its penalty is death for those who break it. Right? The law didn't do that. Death was already the ruling force in creation before the law. From Adam to Moses, people still died. It was already present. The law didn't create that problem. It simply showed that problem. Now, this is important because Paul's not done digging in to what I'll call the problem of the law and how we misuse the law, how the, how the Israelites misuse the law, right? At the end of this chapter, in fact, there's going to be a really set of provocative questions about how the law relates to us as believers that he's going to dig into in chapter 6 and, and all through chapter 7, okay? So he, he's tying in this, this, this thought, Verses 15 through 17, he digs in a little bit further. Um, since he's kind of in the weeds, he's all right, let's dig in a little bit to how this plays out in this comparison. Let me just read these verses. But the free gift, and the free gift, y'all, the, the, the Greek word there, charis, grace, it's, it's what he's already referenced about the work of Christ being the benefit of of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus being extended to us by grace through faith, right? But the free gift is not like the trespass. There he's talking about the rebellion of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more uh, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. All right, I don't know if you're still with me or not. Um, That is a convoluted, complex thought that just is like darting and dashing and moving its way through the weeds. I'm not going to try to take you through it all. Um, This is not a preacher's favorite passage. It is detailed. Now, here's what I will tell you. It is a wonderful passage to study. What I want to do again is kind of go high level and give you an idea of what's the big thing Paul is saying here and then encourage you. Go spend some time looking at these verses and following the logic and thinking through the implications of what Paul is saying here. It will be to your benefit to spend that kind of detailed, focused time in the Word, okay? But for our sake this morning, what I want to do is just kind of pull back and and say, "What, what is the big thing Paul is driving home in this detailed and complex argument? It's this, that there is a fundamental contrast that we need to understand between Adam and Jesus, right? There's a lot of nuance to dig in here, but the big point is this, that Jesus and Adam, as different as they are, are alike in one critical way. They were both humans who acted on behalf of humanity. You're going to see this phrase over and over again, by one man by one man, by one man. The, the word for man there is the Greek word anthropos, right? Not enner Ener is the, the word that means gendered man. The word that is used for man here is anthropos, which means human. The one human Adam compared to the one human Jesus. This is critical because what Paul is is drawing the point out is that you had two humans who were acting on behalf of all of humanity. We'll call them two representative heads, two, two covenant heads, whose choices were not just for them individually, but for all who would be in the covenant they created. In other words, there's two groups of humans. Those who are in Adam and those that are in Christ. Now, you are in Adam by birth. You don't get to choose whether or not you join that club. Adam was your first parent, and the choice that he made absolutely affects you. You do not get to choose whether or not you're in that club. But to be in Christ is a choice. Because to be in Christ, you must receive the gift that he offers as a result of his obedience. Right? Their unique personal choices weren't just made for them, they were, they were made for all of us. And the human Adam chose to transgress, to rebel, to compete with God instead of humbly rely on God. And as a result, he brought death into the world, and that death affects us all. We are born competing instead of humbly relying. We are born desperate to hide our shame and to build our pride instead of joyfully delighting in how God created us and how we uniquely get to image God in our strengths and in our weaknesses, right? And because of that, no amount of self-improvement or religious behavior can fix what went wrong. We simply cannot root out this inheritance from our first father. But in comparison to the human Adam, whose choices affected all of us, the human Jesus chose to obey and then to make the benefit of his obedience available as a free gift to any who would receive it. It is critically important to understand that Jesus won our salvation, not because He was God, but because He was man. He was the first man since Adam to have the opportunity to be what He was created to be, to to actually embody the glory of God not because he was God but because he was man as man was created to be he wore the imago Day, not because he was God but because he walked in full submission to God Right? that's why Jesus throughout his lifetime is like man I don't do anything of my own accord I only do what the Father tells me I don't say anything that are my own words I only speak the words the Father has given me he walked in his life in complete humble dependence on his Father being human as we were intended to be human. And in being human as we were intended to be, and bearing the imago day as we were created to do, he fulfilled the human job description. He was human as we ought to be. He actually fulfilled the law, the law we'd all broken, and he won its blessing instead of its curse. And yet he still died under its curse so that his death could be substitutionary for us. He bore the curse of the law not because he had earned that curse but because we had and in love and in obedience he submitted himself even to that death that the benefit of that death and resurrection might be given to us as a free gift as an expression of grace. Verse 17 is a profound embodiment of the invitation of the gospel. For if by one man's trespass Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul cannot get over the grace of God. He simply can't stop, even in his theology, right? In all of the deep thinking, he just can't get past the beauty of this simple truth. That God loved us so profoundly that He actually became one of us. And He lived the life we should have lived and then died the death we deserve to die to set us free. That God became man. That the Creator became a creature. That God, the original stuff, became an image bearer of that original stuff and then fulfilled the job description of being an image bearer. Humbly, joyfully, faithfully walking in obedience to his Father in complete and humble dependence. Never providing for himself, even though he had the power and the right to do so. Resting completely on the good provision of his Father through the active work of his Spirit. And Paul's like, look, y'all, you're an Adam, but you can be in Christ by simply receiving the righteousness that comes through faith. Not your righteousness, the stuff you earn by being good, trying to fix yourself, live a good life, do the right things, be in the right group. You can forget all that. That's worldliness. Man, you just need to be in Christ. And the way you are in Christ is to receive the gift of righteousness from Christ, to receive by faith the extension of that gift by grace. Grace. Verses 18 and 19, Paul brings it back around and summarizes, right? In verse 18, he says, therefore, that therefore is the same as the therefore before. It's just this time he's going to complete his thought, right? In verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He completes the thought, right? The comparison. Adam sinned. And because of that, we're all condemned. But because of Christ's one act of righteousness, we can all be justified and receive life. What's interesting is that idea of one act of righteousness. I love that. Now, some people think that refers to Christ's obedience to the cross, and I think it includes that, but I don't think it excludes everything else. What was Jesus' one act of righteousness? Was it simply going to the cross? I don't think so. I think it was his lifelong obedience pattern of imaging God, his lifelong commitment to walking in humble dependence on the God who created him as a creature, his his trust in his Father in the face of a a broken world, walking in the same broken world, dealing with the same broken stuff, the same betrayals, the the same abandonments, the, the same twists of faith that he dealt with, all the same things we're dealing with. And yet, instead of exercising the power that was innate to him as God, he humbly relied on his father as a man. His one act of righteousness was this series, this long path of obedience, these series of choices that continually led him to a place of humble dependence and obedience. He was man as man was created to be. And because he was, and then took our sin in our place on the cross, died in my place, bearing the judgment of of my rebellion, I can receive the benefit of his righteousness. Because my sin was imputed to him, I can receive his righteousness imputed to me simply by receiving the gift and believing in the one who took my place. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. There's an interesting interplay of all and many in this passage. Again, I'm not going to pull out all the nuance here. In some cases, Paul's like all, and in some cases, he's like many. And he's dealing with the universality of the work of these two men, that Adam sinned universally for humankind, and Christ acted as Redeemer universally for humankind. And yet there is a distinction because even though they both acted as humanity's representatives, it is only those who receive the gift of righteousness who will receive the blessing of that righteousness. Where we are all in Adam by default, we must be in Christ by choice. We must receive the gift that is offered to us by believing the gospel the good news that makes it available. In other words, if you want to receive the blessing of love, you must respond to that love. The cross is is God's initiation toward us in relationship. If you want the benefit of that relationship, you must respond in relationship. You must love in response to love. You must trust in response to his sacrifice. And that's an invitation back to sanity. That is an invitation back to the God who created you, who will fulfill you, and will set you free from the insanity of your worldliness. Now that leads to some really, really interesting and provocative questions over the next couple of chapters, but well, the next couple of verses, but we're going to save those for next week because we just made it through that really, really complex passage. Well done. Pat yourself on the back. Go back, read it, and dig into it some more. All right? Let me pray for us this morning. I'm going to close us. And uh, we're going to pick this back up again next week. But for now, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the goodness of your grace. I thank you, Lord, that, I mean, it's just unthinkable to us. Jesus, who is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Three whos, one what. Existing in the glory of God, the security of God, the power of God, manifesting the full glory and the worthiness of being God. That instead of keeping what you had and getting more, you gave what you had. You laid down every right. You you acted in love instead of selfishness, to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice it all, that we might receive everything we gave up, that we might be loved and might be delivered from the insanity of trying to find the fullness of life in a world that simply can't give it. Lord, I thank you that you loved us that much. That you, the creator, would become one of your created. That you, God, would become man. To model for us what it means to be human, but more than that, to win back for us the opportunity to be human ourselves. Human as we were created to be. To find our significance in our security, to find our joy and our peace, our sense of being worthy and of being loved in the outpouring of your incredible infinite grace and to be set free in that grace, into the flow of that grace that we might be generous with others as well, that we might be enriched by being loved and learning to love. We thank you for this complex but beautiful truth. Awaken our hearts to it, Lord, not just our minds, but our hearts, that we might be undone, undone of our pride, undone of our our self-satisfaction, undone of our need to judge others and to find bad guys to, to, to rail on so that we can feel like good guys, undone, undone of our pride and remain in your grace.